Before we pray, I want to say how grateful I am and how grateful you should be that you have a worship minister who is not just a skilled musician, but is thoughtful, loves the scriptures, and loves our God. Every song we just declared uh, is not in some random rotation. But notice, if you didn't notice, every single one of them declared our glorious resurrected Savior and how that is our future hope of our future resurrection. And Tim does that purposefully because that is what we're going to be walking through today and what we're going to be walking to, through for the next six weeks in this chapter. So, Tim, I'm grateful for you uh, <laughs> uh, that uh, we don't just have a skilled guitar player, that we have a guy who loves the Lord and is intentional in ministering to us uh, through song. So let me pray. I'll, I'll get it together and then we'll, I won't cry this whole time. <laughs> Father, I thank you that as we open your word, we don't see a how-to book to live. We don't see a bunch of random rules that by our own strength we need to follow, but rather we see a God who has saved us as we fail over and over and over again. And I thank you that as we turn to chapter 15 of this incredible letter, we get to meditate on and sit in for several weeks a reality of our future hope that is so glorious, it's hard to fathom. And I pray that not by my oratory abilities or my examples or my explanation or whatever, but rather by the miraculous work of your spirit, you would change our hearts and that we would be a peculiar people in an age of anxiety because we have a hope in our future resurrection that the anxieties, the stresses, the busyness, the threats of this world cannot touch. I pray that we would believe it to our very being, that it would be who we are, a people who look forward, uh, we look to our resurrected Lord as the first fruits of our future resurrection. And that would be the foundation that we always stand on. We love you. And we pray in that resurrected Lord's name, your son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, several years ago, before we had kids and you could do things like travel, my wife and I would travel. Uh, and so one time we went to Rome uh, and went to, we wanted to make sure we saw the catacombs outside of the city, catacombs where a lot of the early church, early Christians were buried and, and even held some worship services as they were being persecuted and fleeing and, and literally holding church services uh, in a underground cemetery. So we wanted to go, and as we walked up and got our tickets, I saw a uh, Catholic priest who was talking with his parents, and so I started chatting with him. We had some time before our uh, tour and told him my best friend was in the process of becoming a Catholic priest, so we got to chatting, and then we got to actually go uh, on a secret tour. He was on assignment in Rome and had been there a lot and gotten to know the tour guides, and so he's like, why don't you guys come on with us? We go this secret route that the, the rest of the public, you know, doesn't get to go on. And I was like, great, that sounds great. Who cares about Protestants? Catholics are great. I just kind of hid the fact that I was a Reformed Baptist. That's a joke for you freaking out. Every time I mention I have a Catholic friend, I get like nine conversations after, and you're like, what do you mean friend? I'm like, <laughs> I mean like the best friend besides my wife. So get over it. Anyway, so we're going on this uh, tour, uh, and he's like, come on, our tour guide now is like, come on, we'll go down to these, these underground places. And we're going past these signs that are like, do not enter, you know, uh, caving in warning. And we're like, okay, huh. this is fun and, and a bit nervous. And he takes out his flashlight. He's like, look, here's where a bunch of stuff caved in. It's like this avalanche 
It's like, this was a horrible idea, okay? Uh, and so we're going down, and a lot of the, the, the tombs, the graves, have been raided throughout the years because they'd be buried with gold and different things like that. And so a lot of them are empty, but the lower you go, the more intact they are. So we walked into this one room, and you kind of walk in this mini hallway, and there's tombs all around you or graves all around you, and above the graves are drawings or paintings. We, when we die, what do we do? We put on our gravestone our name, you know, dates, and then either a quote or a Bible verse, kind of, you know, you think, what is the, what is the thing I want to say from, from the grave? When people stop at my grave, you know, this favorite verse or whatever it may be. And similarly, that's what the early church would do with different drawings. And there were two drawings that were on almost, uh, almost above every single grave. And so the tour guide asked me, I guess he wanted to quiz me and make me look dumb for not knowing it instead of his Catholic buddy. But he asked me, what are these uh, two drawings? What do they look like? And so the first one was a guy at a table with 12 other guys. And I was like, I know this one. That's the Last Supper. He's like, that's right. Uh, and it's, you know, from, from uh, the grave, the people with that drawing above are saying, I've been, brought, I've been brought to the Lord's table. The Lord has saved me. He's brought me into his inner circle. That's what's true of who I am. I'm, I, I belong to this Savior, Jesus. And then the other drawing, I did not know. And I looked, and I was like, it looks like a snake eating a guy or a, a big monster swallowing a guy or something like that. And that was my best guess. And he said, yeah, that's kind of it. That's Jonah. Uh, that's Jonah and the sea monster. They didn't have the, the, the image of a whale, more like a sea serpent, and spitting him out. And I thought, that's interesting. Why is that the, the, the main drawing? I mean, you could pick a million. You could put a cross above. You could do a million different things. And he said, in the early church, this is the sign of the resurrection. Someone who went into the belly of death and three days later, by the miraculous hand of God, was delivered. And so from the grave, everyone who would have that drawing of Jonah above their grave is saying, one day I will get out of this grave. I will rise by the miraculous hand of my God. That is what a lot of the early church Christians wanted. When people walked by their grave, what do we want them to know? I will rise again because of my God. And that is exactly what Paul is going to start talking about today in chapter 15. And we're going to see for the next six weeks the idea of our Lord and Savior being raised. And as a result, our future hope that one day we will be raised with him. And this is a often, we, we, as evangelicals, we don't, even, we don't really have a low view of the resurrection. We almost have no view of the resurrection. We view ourselves primarily as like a soul trapped in this body skin suit. And so when you hear, at least growing up in church, when I heard the gospel, it was believe you know, in Jesus, pray this prayer, and when you die, you go to, go to heaven, full stop. Right? So every, almost every Christian funeral I've been to, if they have an open casket or you walk by the casket, a lot of the murmur you hear is, you know, they're finally done with that wretched body. They're finally, you know, done with this prison that they've been in their whole life. Over and over again, that's kind of our low view. Certainly no, either no view of the resurrection or it's certainly not central to our faith. And why is that a big deal? Why is that a problem? Because, as we will see as we walk through this chapter, our ultimate hope, the ultimate hope of our salvation is not that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. That does happen. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's far better than here. He like has this dialogue with the Philippians where he's like, I guess I could stay here and keep working for the kingdom or I could die and go be with the Lord, which is way better. 
I guess I'll stay for a while. It's a very strange story. That does happen. You go to be with the Lord. That's not where the story ends. That's not your ultimate hope. That is certainly a hope. That's not your ultimate hope. Your ultimate hope is that one day Christ will return and that body that went in the ground will be resurrected, glorified, and you will spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, don't miss that, with him as you see him face to face in your glorified body as Christ is in his glorified body. And some of you maybe are thinking, what is this? I've never heard this in my life. And that's the point. We have totally, as evangelicals, low church evangelicals, jumped over this teaching. And luckily, we're going to get to spend a lot of time in this so that when we go to Christian funerals in the future, our main hope is, yes, they're with the Lord. Praise God. They aren't suffering anymore in this body, but one day this body will get out of the ground and the soul will be reunited. They will be glorified and they will spend eternity as we see him face to face. How does Revelation end, by the way? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. New heavens and new earth. Get back to the garden, in a sense, where we dwell with God in our glorified bodies. We typically stop halfway through the story of redemption. And Paul's going to say today and through the rest of the chapter, when we do that, when we deny the resurrection, as we'll see the Corinthians have done, we don't just make a minor error. We actually deny the very hope of our faith. If the resurrection goes, everything goes with it. And we Christians are most to be pitied. That's what Paul will say. If we skip over the resurrection, if we deny the resurrection. So, Paul's going to start this great chapter on the resurrection. You've noticed as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, it's, it's a letter of where Paul's just dealing with all these issues. This church is a big mess. And so the first thing we looked at was divisions in the church. You know, people saying, I follow Paul. I follow Jesus. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. And Paul's saying, okay, quit dividing. Then we moved on to sexual morality for a while. Then we moved on to food offered to idols. And we just finished the past couple months looking at uh, orderly worship, spiritual gifts, things like that. And now he's moving to kind of the last section, chapter 16 there, but that's more of a say hi to this guy type stuff. The last big section of the letter, which is really kind of the main piece of the letter, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his people, the future resurrection of his people. Karl Barth, the greatest uh, theologian of the 20th century, says this about 1 Corinthians writing a letter to a friend. Yesterday and today, I sat over 1 Corinthians 15, and I came to a dead stop in the early stages as I started to work through it thoroughly. The chapter is the key to the entire letter with its profound disclosures on this and that, which have, uh, which have their source in ultimate wisdom. Some of them have struck us recently like shocks from an electric eel. And that's my hope that that would happen in a good way. God would shock us to see the glorious resurrection of his son and then our future hope. And we're going to look at this again for a while. And every sermon is going to build on the last. It's a one giant argument. And so today we're going to look at the foundation of this whole argument Paul's going to make, which is Jesus's resurrection, Christ's resurrection. We're going to see three things as we do. First, the centrality of Christ's gospel Centrality of Christ's gospel, the reality of Christ's resurrection, and then thirdly, the glory of Christ's grace. Three things we're going to see. Centrality of Christ's gospel, reality of Christ's resurrection, the glory of Christ's grace. So first, the centrality of Christ's gospel. Let's get into it. Look at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved. 
if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So we see a topic shift here. We're done with orderly worship. Nice little bow on that. And now we're moving on. You see that word now. Paul's shifting to a new subject. And what does he say? I want to remind you of the gospel. Remind you of the gospel. Not ethics, not worship instructions. We're actually turning back to the main thing, the gospel. A gospel, Paul says, which I preached to you when I was in Corinth, when I started this church, that I preached to you, that you received, when I preached it, you received it, in which you are standing in right now, and by which you are being saved. In other words, what the Corinthians have strayed from is not some rules that they've just slipped up and forgotten, not some morals that they've let slide, but rather the very core of their faith, the gospel, is what they've turned away from. And I want you to see two things here that might make us a little uneasy. I want to explain. Look at verse 2, a few things. And by which you are being saved. If you caught that, and you're like, uh-oh, wait a minute. I thought we were saved. I always say, I'm saved. What does that mean, being saved? Two, if you hold fast, that sounds a lot like our efforts. Sounds like if I mess up, I lose my salvation. Hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now we're really freaked out, okay? Believed in vain. What is this talking about? What is he talking about? First of all, being saved. Don't lose any sleep over that. All he's simply saying is that your salvation is a past event, the cross that Christ paid for, the resurrection, the victory over death, that has present implications. So you and I... Uh, right now are not in glory in the new heavens and the new earth seeing Jesus face to face. Agreed? Can we agree on that? Hopefully. Right? We live in this kind of already not yet where we've been declared righteous and saved, yet we look forward to the future conclusion, consummation, where the Lord has wiped away every tear. There's no more sickness and death. There's no more sun because it's not needed. We see the sun, S-O-N, face to face. We're still awaiting that day. That's all simply Paul means being saved. There's this past reality of your salvation that has present implications. And then those next two, if you hold fast and if you believed in vain. What in the world is Paul talking about? And here's what he's not talking about, because I know the, the questions. Paul is not talking about us losing our salvation because there is no such thing as a Christian losing his salvation. You did not save yourself. You did nothing to contribute to your salvation, so guess what? You can do nothing to contribute to your unsaving. If you didn't save yourself, if God saved you when you were at your worst and you played zero part, all you did to contribute to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary, as Jonathan Edwards says, you can do nothing to contribute to your unsaving. We always freak out as if we did all this effort to save ourselves so we don't keep up, you know, our act will somehow fall away. And God's like, what are you talking about? I'm the one who did everything, so I'm the one who's going to keep doing everything. Why would I suddenly save you, clean you off when you are by nature a child of wrath and then say, it's up to you now, do good. God absolutely did 100% of the saving, and he keeps doing 100% of the saving. He is the one who has brought you into this new reality, and there's nothing you can do about it. Even if you wanted to, you can't unregenerate yourself. Uh, years ago, I was uh, working, before Claude and I went to seminary, working at a school as like a Bible teacher. And Claude and I were newly married, and so we were just, I was sharing with a, an, another teacher just like how 
fun it is. That, you know, you don't have to go home at the end of the night, stuff like that. Uh, and so she told me a story about when uh, her and her husband first got married and how they had some difficulties and some fights. And she said one time she was, they had a big fight and she was at their door crying and just said under her breath, I just want to go home. And he heard it and he said, I got news for you, sweetie. You are home, right? You can't go back. You've been brought into this new reality. There's nothing you could do about it. They have a flourishing marriage. He's actually a pastor now. They're doing great. That's why the story was funny. You know, if your kid gets mad at you and screams, I wish you weren't my mom and my dad, do you think, oh, no, did they just declare that to be true? And you say, tough, these are my rules, and you're my kid. There's nothing you can do about it. You played no, rule, uh, no role in you being made and brought about. God says the same thing to you. Lose your salvation. I'm sorry. No one can snatch them from my hand. I'm the one that went after you when you were a rebel and brought you in. Yeah, I don't think you're going to squirm your way out of this, right? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. No one can snatch them from my hand. That includes you jumping out of his hand or whatever the image would be. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's the founder. He's the perfecter of your faith. If you're a Christian, you can't walk away from the Lord. The Lord won't let you. The Holy Spirit won't let you. So calm down. There's no such thing as losing your salvation. What Paul is talking about isn't someone who has been saved and somehow lost it by their own lack of perfection or something like that. What Paul is talking about is it is possible to receive the gospel message casually. That's actually what believed in vain means, believed casually, believed without a whole lot of careful thought. Jesus tells a story, or a parable, if you will, in Matthew 13 that illustrates this point. Matthew 13, 3 through 9, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell uh, on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they, had, uh, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. And seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, and some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear let him hear. So we see four seeds. Three of the four look Christian, look like they've received the gospel, sprang up. This sounds great. Eternity in heaven and no hell. Who would say no to this deal? And persecution comes in like, well, not worth it. Wither away. Casually received, not without much thought. One springs up, but the world swirls around. You know what? It's, this isn't worth it either. You see that three of the four look like they've received it. Some received it with joy, with enthusiasm, springs up Quickly, only one has deep roots. Only one grows deeply. Another illustration from Jesus, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So not everyone who says, Christian, I'm a, you know, I'll join this club. Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? Do we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, I know you were a Christian, but, you know, you lost it. You just weren't good enough, or, you know, you didn't really keep it up. They actually have many mighty works. What does he say? I never knew you. 
I never knew you. Never did you enter into this new reality of being my child. Never did I go bring you in. I've never known you. Notice, it's not if you keep up the good works, but there is some sort of casual belief, not counting the cost. Tons of people come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. And he says, foxes have holes, but I have no place to lay my head. And he goes away. The rich young ruler wants to follow him. And what does he say? Go sell everything and then come follow me. And he goes away, sad. The desire to follow, or even in our culture, the desire to wear the badge of Christian doesn't equal child of the living God. There's a way to believe casually. And the Corinthians, perhaps, as they're denying the resurrection, denying the very hope of their faith, Paul's saying, perhaps this is a sign you believed casually. You didn't really count the cost. You didn't really see what uh, is entailed in this whole idea. One of the biggest rebukes Jesus gives to the Pharisees is he calls them whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are dead bones. There's a way to just wear the badge, keep up good morals, have a conservative worldview, call yourself Christian, but Jesus has never been Lord of your life. You'll gladly have him as Savior, gladly have me as the guy who gets me out of hell, but not Lord, not guy who tells me what to do or someone I have to somehow lay down my life to follow. You see that difference when it's easy, culturally easy, to be a Christian. Warnings like this in the Bible can be scary, and it is because your God is merciful and loving that he gives them. You should not be scared of conviction. What you should be scared of, what you should be terrified of, is numbness to conviction. You should not be scared of the Lord's sweet, merciful, get out of that dangerous zone and flee to a loving God conviction. What do we see in Acts 2 when Peter preaches the first sermon of the church? What's the response of the people? Cut to the heart, stabbed in the heart. Not a nice feeling and crying out, what must we do to be saved? I'm in this terrible, terrifying, I'm under wrath. I see now my sin and what that does, putting me before a holy God. What must I do to be saved? And in an instant, repent, believe, and their misery is traded for joy. That is a merciful God who gives you conviction. You should not be scared of it. You should not be scared of the harsh warnings in the scriptures. You should see it coming from the heart of a loving God. What you should be scared of is reading over them and just closing your eyes to the house that might be burning around you for the sake of not feeling bad. You should be scared of numbness to conviction, not our gracious, merciful Lord's Conviction, and if you are a Christian, if you have been brought in to the family of God, things like this should make you rejoice. Yes, that was who I was, and praise God for a Savior who gets me out of such terror, and now I have traded that terror for joy. You need to hear things like, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There was before you were in Christ Jesus. There's none now. You need to hear things like Jesus saying to you, no one can snatch you from my hand. I don't lose those who are mine. That's what you need to hear and you need to rest. But if Christianity or Jesus is just kind of an add-on to the American dream that you already wanted to leave or live, you, that it should be a bit terrifying. If the picture displayed in the scriptures looks nothing like your life, pick up your cross, this instrument of death and torture, and follow me. If your life is, yeah, my life got actually easier after I kind of joined this Christian crew of conservative morality. That is a bit of a warning. Okay, have I ever made him Lord? Have I ever actually counted the cost? Have I, like the Corinthians, believed casually? And then if that is you, 
flee to a merciful God. Flee to a loving God whose arms are open and is saying, trust in my son, come. Come to my son, trust in him. Paul is saying, I preached to you, you received it, you're standing in this gospel now, and some of you, it looks like you may have believed casually, you're denying things you cannot deny. You're not allowed to say Jesus wasn't raised, you're not allowed to deny the very hope of our faith. Some of you may have believed casually. That's the centrality of the gospel that actually shows his main point, which is the gospel is not something you receive and then move on from. The gospel is not just another card in your wallet, not something to just be added to, you know, to the bag of, of what you wanted to do. Great, I've got eternity figured out. No hell, heaven, great. Now on to my career. That's not the gospel, not something you receive and then move on from to your dreams or things like that. The gospel is the very center of your life. You hear it, you receive it, you stand in it, you hold fast to it, you glory in it, you drink joy from it, you praise God for it. It is the definer of who you are. It is the fundamental definer of who you are. You were dead, now you've been made alive. You were blind, now you see. You were a sinner, now you've been declared a saint by the living God. You were stained with guilt, overwhelmed with shame, now you've been washed clean. You were hopeless, now you have an eternal hope. You were a stranger to God, now you're a son of God, now you're a daughter of God. That is the most fundamental thing about you, what the gospel has done in your heart, who the gospel has made you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has gone. The old you has gone. Behold, the new has come, Paul says. Paul says about himself, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live. No longer old Paul who lives. Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the, faith, I, or in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The gospel isn't an add-on to your life. It is your life. It is the most fundamental thing about you. The Corinthians have heard it, and it seems like they've moved on from it for their own glory, their own self-worship, everything we've seen as we've been walking through this book, their own pride, making them look well. It's just an add-on to highlight their own wisdom. And Paul is saying, no, no, let me remind you of the gospel I preached to you when you were there. Let's go back. It seems that you've moved on from this. We don't do that. You never move on from it. Let me remind you of the gospel. So he wants to remind them of the gospel that he preached, but what is the gospel that he preached. That's where we see in the next verse. So we've seen uh, the centrality of the gospel. Now we're going to move on to really what is the foundation of all chapter 15, the reality of Christ's resurrection. So what is this gospel we don't move on from, according to Paul? Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in according with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So first of all, I want you to notice in verse three, this is a, a sidebar. Notice what he says here. I delivered to you what I, or as a first importance, what I also received. What is the Corinthians' main problem? Where do they view wisdom? Where do they view knowledge as coming from? Right here. Let me stand up and get a stage and display my awesomeness before everyone and let them shower me with praises. That's the Corinthians' problem. Paul's the exact opposite. This isn't something I've conjured up. This is a gospel I received. This comes from our infinite God, and I'm delivering it to you. 
the gospel is not something that we just conjure up. To quote Tommy Nelson down the street in Denton, if it's new, it ain't true. If it's true, it ain't new, which I don't think he said first. I just heard that from him first, so he's quoting somebody else. But you have been given, Jude uh, 1, 3, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It's something we've received. It's not something we think, man, I'm really thought up some great things. God thought up some great things and did them, and we received the message, and so Paul is delivering it to them totally opposite of the Corinthians. But then look back at verse 3. What is this gospel? I delivered to you as in first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let me remind you of the gospel, Paul says, that I received. I delivered to you as the first thing you should know, before we talk about anything else, before we talk about your ethics and sexual morality, laws and orders of worship, let me tell you this first thing. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised. Notice, died, didn't just die. He's not just saying a historical fact. Christ died, buried, raised. He doesn't say that. Christ died, why? There's a reason Christ died. There's a for there that we need to really pay attention to. God does not send his eternally beloved, begotten son to take his eternal wrath for fun. The eternal son of God doesn't step off of his throne and go take the eternal wrath of his father for fun. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he goes to the cross. What is that joy? There's something behind the cross that Christ was after, that the father is after in sending his son. And Paul tells us, for our sin, for your sin and for my sin. Because, why? You and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, far off. No one does righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one trusts God, no one seeks after God. We are cut off with no hope. Notice, as you go through your Bible reading plans this year, when you go through the Old Testament, every hero, notice how spectacularly they fail. Moses murders a guy and dishonors God publicly in front of the entire nation of Israel. David sleeps with his best friend's wife and then has him killed, okay? Pretty bad sins, I would say, in my opinion. I don't know about you. Notice how spectacular the best of the best of the best of the best have no hope in their own efforts of following God's law. We can do nothing to reconcile us to this infinite gap between the God we were created to know and us that our sin has caused. And then we have those two words in Ephesians 2 that are the greatest two words in the Bible, but God. But God sends his son, who for the joy set before him goes to the cross, dies for our sins. Dies for our sins. Now, all those former things that were true of you and me by nature, children of wrath, dead, no hope, no one seeks God, our best works are filthy rags before him. All of those things are no longer true of us. And what is now true of us is we've been made alive. We've been washed clean. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our life is hidden with Christ in God, and we've been adopted. And we now share in the infinite joy that is knowing the God that we were created to know. That's our reality now. Why? That's the joy he's after behind the cross. He died. He didn't just die. He died for our sins. Paul goes on. He was buried, meaning actually dead, 
not like, you know, all the weird theories. Maybe he was just really hurt and bled so much he passed out. You know, all the weird, like, deny the resurrection theories. Actually dead, buried, and then sets up what comes next. He was raised. He doesn't stay dead. He doesn't stay dead. He was raised. If there's no resurrection, there's no victory for us. If Jesus stays dead, guess who's won in that battle? Death. But he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay conquered. We can actually sing, oh, death, where is your sting? Why? Because our Savior has raised, meaning the sin has been paid for. That infinite gap has been paid for. The chains of the devil on your wrists have been knocked loose. And now death has been actually defeated. Death has no hold anymore on Christ and in the future of Christ's people. This infinite gap between us and the Father have been bridged. His resurrection brings about these unthinkable implications for you, for me, for our salvation, for our hope, for our faith, for God's mission, for our eternity with him. And we're going to see a lot of that as we keep going through this chapter. But for now, just hear me say, don't stop at Good Friday. Get to Easter. Easter's where the victory is. Easter's where the victory is. He was raised victorious. And then notice, Paul says, after all of these, according to the scriptures. Why is he saying that? This is not some thrown together last minute plan of God. This is something he has thought through and been declaring. This is the hope of the Old Testament. This isn't just some random event. Since Genesis 3, God declares, someone will come who will crush that serpent. Someone will come that will be pierced for our transgressions, be crushed for our iniquities, and who, by whose wounds we will be healed. Again, as you read your Old Testament reading plans, hear over and over again the cry, we need a Savior, and see over and over and over again God says, saying, one is coming. One is coming, and Paul is saying, here he is. Died for our sins, was buried and was raised victorious by his wounds, we will be healed. One is coming. Look at verse 5. Paul's going to give us a lot of witnesses. So he's dead, buried, raised, and then, verse 5, and then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So, why is he doing this? Remember the context. What are the Corinthians denying? This fact, the resurrection. There's no resurrection of the dead, is what they're saying. And Paul's saying, uh, your Lord was raised, and here's a bunch of dudes who saw him after he was raised from the dead, most of whom are still alive. You can go ask them if you're, you know, curious. So, first, Peter, Cephas, someone who is kind of seen as the leader of the 12, the disciples, that's why he comes first, someone that the Corinthians know, or at least know enough to have a whole group that's like, that's our guy, right? I follow Peter. Peter, the 12, that's kind of a title for the disciples. Some of you biblicists are like, wait a minute, Judas wasn't one, so there should be 11 errors in the Bible. Okay, it's just a title for the 12, okay? So Peter, the disciples, then he's like, and 500 other people, most of whom you can go ask. James, who is kind of the leader of the apostles, Jesus' brother. If you read Acts and you see Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, you'll see James stand up and kind of give the authoritative word. He was seen in the same way that Peter's kind of seen as the leader of the disciples. James is seen as a leader of all the apostles, that last thing Paul says. Then 
all the apostles. Paul's really simply saying here, it happened. The resurrection happened. He's citing his evidence here. He's giving a witness list saying, again, most are still alive. You can go ask them. Uh, There is a member of my family who I will not say his name because he too is still alive and might watch this. Uh, And I don't want to shame him, but he tells stories that are questionable. I'll say that. And throughout my life, I've thought, you know what? I think most of these are not true. Uh, But I nod, and I'm kind, and I think, wow, that's great. And so he told me a story one time of uh, him going to a Rangers game, baseball game, and apparently he was unaware that you needed to park 30 miles away and walk. And so he said, not doing that, and pulled up, this him telling the story, pulls up to the curb of the stadium and parks his car. And as the attendant came out yelling at him, you can't do that, he said, hey, I've been called, I'm going to go investigate a bomb threat I need you to stop your job and watch my car. Then he went in and watched seven innings, got bored, went back into his car and drove away. And so he tells me that story, and I have the reaction you're all having right now, which is, no way did that happen. There's no way the SWAT team wouldn't have gotten instantly called like a million things. That's 0% true. Then like a year goes by, and I was having dinner with the family, and the friend of this person, this family member, a friend was brought And just randomly at dinner, he was like, remember that time we went to that Rangers game and you crazy person parked on the curb? And I was like, that happened? Oh my gosh, there's no way. But there was a witness. And so now I'm forced to believe that this insane story is true, okay? That is what Paul is doing, except with much more evidence. Me, Peter, that guy that you all love, all the disciples, all the apostles, all the leaders of the church that you claim to be a part of, and 500 other people, and if you still don't buy that, go ask them. Some have died, but most of them are still alive. He's simply just saying, this is, you know, this, this happened. He's citing evidence. Richard Bauckham, a uh, New Testament scholar, says this, Paul is meaning for this to be something of an authentication. If you want to go check, you still can. There is uh, continued accessibility to the eyewitnesses. So, why, again, is this so important? Because if it didn't happen, as the Corinthians are saying, there's no hope. There's no hope. Your salvation crumbles. Your faith crumbles. Not only that, we are most to be pitied of anyone on the earth, Paul will say later in the chapter. It happened. It's really important that it happened. Here's all the witnesses to Wyatt, or to, that saw that it happened. He dies for our sins. He was buried. He was raised victory has been won. And again, we'll see as we walk through this chapter in the same way that his death was for you, his resurrection is for you. In the same way that his death has massive implications to save you from eternal death, his resurrection has massive implications for your resurrection in the future. It's an event in the past, but it has huge implications for us. N.T. Wright, who wrote... uh, kind of the book on the resurrection, says this, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project to not, what we typically think, to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but rather to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's prayer is all about. What do we pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, new heavens and new earth. That's Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of this. We'll see later in the chapter. First fruits of what will be the future for us. 
So, we'll see that more, but for now, just here. It happened. There's many witnesses. And Paul is going to now move on to say, and there's one more witness. There's one more witness. He's shown the centrality of Christ's gospel. He's now displayed the reality of Christ's resurrection. And now he's going to kind of zoom in on himself as the final witness to not to highlight his own accomplishments, but rather to show the glory of Christ's grace. The glory of Christ's grace. Look at verse 8. Last of all, so he's still in the context of citing all these witnesses, Peter, apostles, 500, James, disciples. And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, don't miss that, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether it is I or they, so we preached, and so you believe. So, Paul, last, last witness, okay, Paul. One of the criteria of being an apostle is you have to have seen the risen Lord and be commissioned by him. Where does Paul see the risen Lord and where is he commissioned by him? On his way to more effectively destroy that risen Lord's people, that risen Lord's church. That's the context Paul is commissioned out of. So he lists himself last and then... Kind of strangely, he seems to give every possible horrible description of himself that he can think of. He's one untimely born, literally one almost miscarried, one born with defects compared to all the other apostles. He's this uh, child who was untimely born. He's the least of the apostles. He's not even worthy to be called an apostle. And he persecuted God's church. What's he doing here? Is he doing the thing that a lot of us do where we say a bunch of bad things about ourselves in hopes? People will be like, no, that's not true. You know, you're like, sorry, I'm so annoying. <laughs> you're like, no, don't say that. You're great, right? It's just miserable for everybody. Oh, I'm just so ugly today. Like, <laughs> no, you're beautiful, uh, handsome always. You know, is he doing that? No, he's not doing that. We actually see what's kind of behind his motivations in verse 10. I worked harder than any of them, which sounds like he's bragging about himself, but then what does he say? Though it was not I, but the grace of God who was with me. He's not bragging. He's not hoping for compliments. Rather, by showing the reality of his lowliness, of his unworthiness, he's actually magnifying a God who gives grace to such lowly people using himself to say, what God, what God goes after the guy who's destroying his church, someone who's made it his mission to destroy this God's mission, what God goes after him and not only shows him grace, but makes him the primary deliverer of this message to the world. What kind of gracious God does that? That's what Paul is getting at. By showing his own unworthiness, he's magnifying the character of our God. The deeper you see your sin, when we talk about the, the reality of our depravity, the depths of our sinfulness, when we talk about that, it's not to heap shame. It's not to cover you with guilt. It's actually the opposite. It's to magnify the grace of God. What does Jesus say? He who forgives little or is forgiven little loves little. 
If I'm mainly good, got a little bit of sin, Jesus got to clean me up, that's a little Savior. He who has forgiven much, he who sees the infinite offense against the holy God, and that holy God forgives you, sends his son to die in your place, that person loves much. The deeper you see your sin, the more beautiful you will see your Savior. What does Jesus say to the self-righteous Pharisees? Those who are healthy need no doctor. It's those who are sick. I came not for the righteous, but for who? Sinners. It's not to shame you. It's not for you to feel constantly like that, you know, self-deprecating person, but really to see how glorious your God is. That is what Paul is doing, displaying the reality of who he is. The more you see your sin, the more beautiful. The more you see what you've been forgiven, the more glorious you will see your Savior. That's what Paul's doing. He's magnifying his gracious God. And then lastly, verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. What's central here isn't the person bringing you the message. What's central is the message itself. Paul's saying this, this gracious God who is gracious to me is the same one who has been gracious to you. And I'm coming as kind of a walking embodiment of his unbelievable character. If he was gracious towards me, he will be Gracious to you, I preached this gospel and you believed it. So, Corinthians, don't move on from it. Don't deny it. Rather, rest in it. That's the foundation of chapter 15. Paul, again, saying this gospel is so central to your life. You believed it. You're standing in it. You've been, you're being saved by it. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. He's been raised. There's witnesses to it, including me. And I brought this gospel to you as a living example of God's grace, that he's shown grace to me and he will surely show it to you. Why would you ever walk away? Why would you ever deny this gospel? Why would you turn from such a glorious, loving God who sent his son for you? Don't move on from him. That's Paul's plea to the Corinthians. And may we here, 2,000 years later, hear that same plea. Don't move on from the gospel. Don't move on from him. Don't move on from your Savior. See the centrality of your Savior's gospel in your life that he's brought you in. See the Savior who died for you, who was buried for you, and who was resurrected for you, and see his glorious grace that goes to the depths, goes to the most unworthy, a Savior who came not for the righteous, not for those who clean themselves up, but rather for sinners. Let's pray and we will take communion. Father, we want to do that, but we uh, far more often than we would like to admit are like the Corinthians, not in that we explicitly deny essential doctrine like the resurrection. No one in this room, I would wager, has said the resurrection isn't real and certainly that Jesus hasn't been raised. But over and over again, we look to our own works. We don't look at the gospel as our daily sustaining Reality, something that's been made true of us, we think, great, we're saved, and then we quickly move on. Many of us do. I know I'm quick to look to my own effort, my own self. I take my eyes off of my Savior. We don't want to do that. We want to deeper and deeper and deeper. We want your spirit to to brand it on our hearts where it is the core of who we are. Almost like a magnet, when we try to look away, just the spirit brings us back. We, We behold our risen Christ and see his grace and his mercy that it's free, and we live through him. 
We don't live by our own efforts, not even for our own sanctification, but we live looking to him, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Would you do that, Father? We can't muster that in our own hearts. Our hearts are bent towards sin. You're the one that breaks the chains. Please, please do that in our hearts. Sanctify us. Keep our eyes fixed on your son that we might be conformed into his image. And we pray as now we take communion our continual reminder of his broken body and his shed blood, and then as we worship that your spirit would minister to us and change our hearts. We love you, Father, and we lay all these things at your feet knowing that you are that gracious and merciful God who saves sinners of which we are the chief. We love you and pray in your son's name. Amen.